We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Welcome to episode three of the Existentialist podcast. Today we're talking about illness and death anxiety, essentially the quintessential essence if I could say, if I could repeat myself, of existentialism, uh, that everything really returns to death. So what do we mean by illness and death anxiety? So I can provide a bit of an overview in terms of illness anxiety, particularly how it manifests on a more disordered lens. So of course, as the name suggests, illness anxiety is when we suffer from any anxiety surrounding contracting an illness or suffering from an illness. Where it turns into more of a disorder would be any time that you maybe are preoccupied with acquiring a serious illness. And if there's like a high, high level of anxiety about your health, for some people with illness, anxiety issues, they often find themselves in emergency rooms, constantly going to doctors, asking doctors to perform examinations, assessments, checks, and usually nothing comes back. Usually people's health is cleared, but there's that persistent nagging feeling of I'm not okay. I'm not all right. Like I'm going to get sick or I am sick and feeling really unsettled, uh, having a lot of fear about that. And consequently, often our fear with contracting an illness is because it could lead to our deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so well said, Janelle. And I wonder if um, in following our tradition, if we can uh, perhaps even check with ourselves right now, how are we doing with that? Is, um, given that uh, we are living in these times of pandemic and all that, how are we doing with that for our own anxiety? The real possibility of getting sick? Mm-hmm. As we told you in previous episodes, we try to have a moment of checking, reflection on ourselves and kind of sharing with you where we are right now. And since this is the topic and Janelle provided a bit of an overview, I wonder if it makes sense to check in with ourselves. I think that's a good idea. I, I know for me right now, if I was to check in, really my check-in is very much about my body and just being at home more because I'm not moving as much and I'm not interacting with my body in the same way, I have noticed more pain and more aches and more soreness or discomfort just from sitting in a chair and kind of being in front of a computer all day. And I don't like when my body is in pain. It does affect my mental health, certainly. So that this has been an area of discomfort for me and I certainly, I, I don't necessarily have anxiety about contracting COVID, I think, because I have trust or, you know, faith in my body's ability to endure it. And fortunately, I am in good health. But I do feel and tend to feel anxiety on a more physical level. So if I am anxious, it will show up more as physical symptoms. 
So it's been interesting to try and figure out like, do I have anxiety that's just showing up as soreness or is it just because my structure has changed? It's something I've been trying to reflect on lately. Mine's a little bit similar to yours too, Janelle. I have fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain condition. And I've definitely noticed that when I've been at home the last while for the social distancing, that I'm just not moving much and not moving is really not good for the body. And so I'm noticing too more pain, more fatigue. I'm not so worried about like contracting COVID. Although I did have a bit of a moment the other day where I was like, wait, hang on a second. I've had pneumonia before and I'm quite susceptible to bronchitis and things. So maybe I don't have the best lungs, but then I shelved that thought pretty quickly. So I'm just going to go with not being super worried about it at this point, but I am anxious about it when it comes to like vulnerable family members, like my sister's due to give birth in April and my grandfather's 80 and just different people like that. That's where I feel the anxiety. But for myself personally, I'm not experiencing a whole lot of what I would call like anxiety manifesting in my body. It's more the pain, I think, of of not moving when movement is so good for us. I'll take a slightly different tack, and not just to be different, but, but because I'm one in in relatively splendid health uh, most of the time, but also particularly more on the death anxiety, which I quite enjoy about existential thoughts, that at some point in my life and indeed in my studies now, you know, training in, in existential therapy, death anxiety, I couldn't say probably for certain ceased to be something, but it's certainly not something that I fear dying it's you know being dead i'm much more in that kind of realm of i don't want to suffer and i don't like pain at all i'm not i'm I, people who do baffle me actually <laughs> even though i can understand them intellectually but i've, I've had the great pleasure uh, and and it's it'll sound like a strange word when you when you hear what i have to say of having a client who who has a terminal illness and quite a serious one and and will probably die in the time that we are together and speaking to to her during this epidemic where there is a very real chance that she's going to die from her illness or from contracting covid or both is quite illuminating and she's stated to me that she's okay to die she just doesn't want to suffer and so not, not just experiencing it kind of intellectually for myself imagining what it would be like but actually being with somebody in the therapy room or online who is living that is quite something. And rather than being scary, I find it quite moving and quite touching actually. And I'd be hard pressed to find any other client experience that I've had that has touched me so much. Yeah. And, um, for me to like, like the, I don't have so much anxiety about again, contracting the virus and, and all that. And I do trust my body largely speaking i'm also i'm aware of the possibility of distrust being misplaced and maybe who knows how my body will react if i get the virus so i'm obviously i keep that possibility open that things will not go as well as i trust them that they will 
But fundamentally, I don't find myself anxious about getting sick with this. But I'm very anxious about my parents getting sick with this. My parents are in their 80s. They are are in Romania. I don't really trust how Romania is dealing with all this. Right now, probably not the best country to be in at this time, probably in terms of like the the measures and the capacity of, of the healthcare system and all that. So that is something more uh, scarier for me in this. And yeah, about death anxiety, I find myself also anxious about the suffering and possibly my incapacity to confront that suffering, to be with that suffering, not so much about death itself, but about that process of confronting that suffering and enduring it, not not feeling dehumanized by it, overwhelmed by it. So what do we make of the difference or or maybe the similarity between illness anxiety and and death anxiety? Anybody who's remotely connected to existential thought will probably just be speaking back to us as they're listening to this saying, everything's death anxiety. (laughs) I was just about to say that, but anyways. (laughs) I mean, because I, I think it's like the fear of being sick it can go very quickly to, okay, I'm afraid that this sickness will kill me. But mm-hmm. at, the same, at the same time, what Janelle said uh, at the beginning also makes me realize that there are some significant differences. Mm-hmm. So thank you for asking that question. I mean, certainly the fear of pain and suffering, um, loss of control and awareness of it, like uh, watching watching one's body succumb to an illness uh, can be really awful. So my dad had contracted Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, so ALS. And I have to say, as, as a child, this was especially traumatic for me. But even as an adult, for him having gone through it, but also witnessing an illness that you cannot see but that wreaks havoc on the body. And essentially what occurs with that disease is that slowly over time, you body loses the muscles, lose contact with the brain. And so you lose the capacity to use your muscles and eventually end up in a vegetative, not a vegetative state, but you are trapped within your body or consciousness is trapped within your body. To many people, that is quite scary. And of course, that's a, that's an extreme example of this for sure. But that whole process of not knowing to then becoming aware of and then enduring something that is beyond one's control, there's a terror in that ne- that I think does stand next to the terror of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes death can um, can um, be experienced as a relief for these people. I mean, yeah, a mercy. If, if you lose control over your body and there is no hope that will mm-hmm. ever feel good in your body, I think it's um, it's conceivable that someone will will wish to die and to to leave the body and not to be in the body. Mm-hmm. So for these people, it wouldn't be so much death anxiety. Like, Actually, this could be experienced as a relief. Mm-hmm. And um, the dread of being trapped in their bodies far outweighs them, the fear of death. Yeah, that word dread uh, comes up quite a bit when we talk about mm-hmm. anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really, I, I don't know if there's any better word to, to describe the feeling. 
And uh, I wonder, like, since we are dealing today, these days, with a real possibility to to be sick. Like, I, I know that each of us kind of said that we are not so scared about contracting the virus and getting sick. But maybe we can follow our process to deepen a bit, um, even if we... Um, if we went through this first round of checking and say, well, I'm not so scared. Like if we stay with it a little bit and we envision the possibility of getting sick, mm-hmm. like of my body actually being very sick with this, how would that be for us and for each of us? And how would we understand it? And then how would we respond? Yeah, I was actually um, confronted with that feeling or that scenario the other day when I was reading an article that was talking about the coronavirus and how there is no treatment for it and so and there's no cure for it and so the point of the ventilators is to to just be there to prolong the process so that your body has a longer chance of fighting it Mm -hmm. off itself and then I had Mm -hmm. this kind of this weird moment with myself of like, can I trust my body to fight Mm -hmm. this off? There, there is nothing else on Mm -hmm. the outside other than this prolonging measure of the respirators or ventilators to help me. My body has to do it itself. And, and can I trust that? And, Mm -hmm. and I'll admit that was a scary, that was a scary thought. Oh yeah. I can, I can relate. I had a similar um, thought myself, like when I realized that it really comes, there is no cure, there is no treatment, and it's just up to my body and to each of our bodies to to fight this. And I also realized how much we depend on external support and how much we mm-hmm. instinctively reach out if something happens to us, not necessarily an illness, but anything, we reach out, there's, there must be something to fix this. Mm-hmm. How much we live this kind of everything can be fixed mentality. Mm-hmm. There is a solution for everything. So I felt very exposed and very much on my own, thinking that, oh, I'm just my body and mm-hmm. this virus. And there is nothing I can reach out for. I mean, there is literally nobody and there is nothing. And that definitely spiked my, my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like even if no, not all the way to you know death anxiety, but like even this um, full exposure. And aloneness, a very peculiar sense of aloneness. I mean, my body, not even my mind or my you know, my consciousness, but really my body, the, the processes, the immune processes, mechanism in my body to trust those, to fight with, with an invader, with a foreign virus. Mm-hmm. Not that- in Trump's definition of foreign virus, but foreign in the sense that it's not... <laughs> from our bodies, not recognizable by our bodies. And what I hear you saying is there was a feeling of no one can help me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if people want to help, mm-hmm. I totally trust the yeah. humanity that they would want to help, but they cannot. Mm-hmm. And that that's where it tends into death anxiety too, mm-hmm. the powerlessness, the, mm-hmm. the powerlessness of humans and the powerlessness of our capacity over death. Mm-hmm. And and something I would suggest in the in the modern world, particularly in the modern Western world and modern Western developed world, and seemingly the more developed, the more this occurs. This mm-hmm. kind of forgetting that we die, mm-hmm. the kind of pursuit of anti aging, the pursuit of connecting our brains with robots, uh, uploading our consciousness, 
you name it, uh, dying is just not remembered at all. Also, is here all the time. So we, we forget that uh, we are very fragile. Usually so. And that we, so this goes back to the illusions that are exposed or shattered by what happens to us right now with this mm-hmm. virus. Like the illusion of control, the illusion that we can do something about pretty much everything and we can fix pretty much everything just by sheer power and by our decision. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like that there is a lot of humbleness in what's mm-hmm. going on. And it's very difficult to live one's life in constant awareness that we are finite, that we will die. I love this quote. Um, it's from The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And he writes, what does it mean to be a self-conscious animal? The idea is ludicrous. If not, it is monstrous. It means to know that one is food for worms. This is the terror. <laughs> to have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression. And with all this, yet to die. His writing, I think, is pretty incredible. For me, certainly, the anxiety around illness is that I, I feel my, as he writes, excruciating inner yearning for life. I feel that so intensely. And this, this idea that I would become ill and that I would no longer be able to self-express or that my capacity to engage with life would be limited that's very difficult for me to think about because I think with death anxiety, of course, I don't want to die. I don't want it to be over or to end, but then it ends. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't be so aware that it ended, but with an illness, there's the consciousness of maybe the end coming closer or, or this, the ways that I can't engage with my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like this, um, crisis that we talked about in the previous episode, right? That it gets prolonged and it mm. becomes not a crisis, but actually a strange and somewhat dreadful way of being and mm. being able to be in it day after day after day, that enduring mm-hmm. and observing what you say, Janelle, about self-conscious, I mean, quoting, like the self-consciousness, right? Being aware, being present with it day by day. I can feel that that could be more exhausting and dreadful than just ending. Mm-hmm. So Irvin, Irvin Yalom has a great line, a great title to one of his books called Staring at the Sun, in which he discusses anxiety as living our life in anxiety is like living daily staring at the sun. Mm-hmm. Every now and then you have to look away or more often than that, right? And picked up on what we've been saying, that would apply equally, I think, to that consciousness of mm-hmm. being too conscious all the time. That we kind of have to forget that we are mortal for periods of time, because otherwise we would be in, in, in crippling anxiety. That's right. And yet our society moved to a level of forgetfulness that is deeply concerning and Agreed. very exposed these mm-hmm. days. That we kind of yeah. forgot a lot mm-hmm. about fragility and yeah. impotence and powerlessness. Yeah. We removed ourselves from the wild and, Mm -hmm. you know, so we forget with things like the virus that, that we are still of nature. Nature still has its impact on us as beings. That we still are limited by our physicality Mm -hmm. as we started this episode, right? Like we are embodied 
we share this with animals. It is kind of, again, the word um, humbling comes to mind. Mm. We are kind of um, humbled by all this and realize that we are not that powerful. Mm -hmm. I do have another shorter quote. It's taken from the writing The Psychology of the Sickbed by Jan Hendrik Vandenberg. And he writes, Normally I am not aware of my body. It performs its task like an instrument. Now that I am ill, I become acutely aware of a bodily existence, which makes itself felt in a general malaise. And just as like you said, Mahalo, we, we just can kind of continue until we're forced to stop. And, and often it's, it is illness that forces us to stop. And I mean, certainly right now, the threat of it has forced us to, to stop and become aware of our, our bodies, mm -hmm. that we exist in a body. And I feel a, a somewhat beautiful possibility in that. Scared that we are all living to different degrees of getting sick. It's really calling us back to to our bodies, back to the foundation, mm -hmm. back to our physicality and how we how we live with that, how we how are we mm -hmm. engaging with that. Or back to nature, as, as mm -hmm. Janelle so mm -hmm. so um, so well put. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, something um, something good, something precious in that invitation, even if it feels very scary, of course, and we wouldn't do it under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. But during these times, it's a call to reflect, okay, what? Um, how am I as an embodied being? Yeah. Living in my body and as part of nature. Mm -hmm. I think, too, with clients who suffer with illness, anxiety, there is this sense of I'm hyper aware of my body, but I'm not in my body. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm not friends with my body. Yeah, and, uh, Janelle and and possibly Chelsea here. Can you say more about that? Because that's a concept that I think a lot of mm -hmm. people have have difficulty with. Mm -hmm. Well, I just I find in actually having a chronic illness that is what brought me into relationship with my body in a very deep and meaningful way that I didn't have before. And I think sometimes when there's a lot of fear around being sick or wondering if a symptom is a sign of something or, or feeling something in your body as a sensation and not knowing what it is, it can spark fear. But for me, that that's turned into more of a, a curiosity of okay, my, my body's communicating something to me. Those sensations are supposed to be there. And what getting the chronic illness did for me was it realized, it made me realize how divorced I was from my body, how separate I was from it rather than actually in it and embodied mm -hmm. as Mahilo was saying. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Chelsea of Pain remind, reminds me of a, a, an episode of House MD. Mm -hmm. In which there's a, a young girl who, who has something called SEPA, which I can't, I don't know what it stands for. I'm sure I could look, we could look it up, but uh, essentially she doesn't feel any pain, mm -hmm. and so every morning she has to wake up and and look at herself in the mirror to make sure she hasn't bitten her lip or scratched her face or indeed that she hasn't fallen over and broken something, and how that so she has a body but. How could she be in it and what kind of anxiety might that you know, as well? Certainly that our sensations are the a form of language 
that our body uses to speak with us and simply put information. And pain is certainly information given to us. You know, I've been to the emergency for um, pain I was experiencing and they asked, do you want some pain medication? And it wasn't so bad that I, I really needed it. But I felt in that moment like, no, I really don't because it's important for me to be aware of what's going on so I can communicate with you what's going on. And if you take that away from me, then we're just theorizing and it's my body that's going to be able to help both of us out right now. And that took a huge shift for me is not seeing my body against me. It was when I was I really was disembodied for a long time in my life. So it was like me versus my body versus seeing my body as me. Mm-hmm. And I think I was really struck by what you said, Janelle, like with your um, clients who suffer from illness, anxiety, right? They, yeah. And I can relate to that. You said it very well, and I cannot remember exactly. Your they're they're hyper aware of their body, but they're not necessarily in it. Like they observe their body. They can mm-hmm. be very obsessed even with observing all the little shifts and symptoms in their bodies, but they are not living in the body. So I wonder if we can... Um, even explain that more or like not explain it, but like bring it to life a bit more. I think this is so crucial in um, working with clients with illness, anxiety, but for us living through these times, how can we not be just aware, hyper aware of the body, but actually live embodied? I think that certainly one of the things that I've learned in my, certainly my training in EA is, Mm -hmm. is simply paying attention and listening to to what my body is saying. Not necessarily that my body is telling me the right thing or not that, you know, just accepting my gut instinct, if you like, but that if there's something that's going on for me, it's telling me something. It's And it's as valuable as kind of, let's say, logic or rationality to consider. And, and even, there's even scientific evidence for that. There's a book called um, Descartes' Error written by a, a neurologist called Antonio de Maggio, who talks about somatic markers and how all thought has an emotional, bodily, sensational component. And whether we like it or not, it's there. So maybe when we, um, I mean, paying attention, I think that's uh, one of the problem with people suffering from illness, anxieties, they pay too much attention, mm-hmm. but not the right kind of attention, if I can say yeah. They are uh, paying attention to certain things, but they lose the wholeness, the whole picture. Mm-hmm. They, again, they, they suffer from that narrow attention, mm-hmm. the tunnel vision. And then usually instead of entering a dialogue with what you said, what does he tell me? Oh, I'm curious about it. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's stay with it and see where it takes me. Usually people with anxiety moves into a quickly into an interpretation, which mm-hmm. is a catastrophic one, like, oh, I have I'm coughing a bit today, I must have yeah. the COVID. Straight and, to the answer. And I will die. So it it goes very quickly, right? Um, fueled by anxiety. But like, so it starts like if we want to kind of reduce the um, illness anxiety using what you suggested, Janelle, like by um, kind of living in our bodies rather than just being hyper aware of, of our bodies, it all starts with paying kind of the right kind of attention, not um, over-focusing and narrowing on certain symptoms, but actually broadening our view. And then when we notice something, entering in dialogue with it. 
by asking how does it feel, what does it tell me, being curious. And this is very different from jumping to an already predetermined interpretation. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is bad. This means I have a virus. This means I'm going to die. So I think that makes a huge difference. Simply put, exactly as you said, it's so much about getting curious as to how does the sensation in my body actually feel? Like to, and then really feel it. Bring your awareness to that sensation, whether it's scratching your throat or a sharpness in your stomach or what have you, and to really feel it before one jumps to, this is what it means. This is what I think about it. This is the result. It's just, what is it and how is it felt? And I think too, even to like explore parts of the body that don't even usually have a lot of feeling, there there really is so much there. I know for me, I tend not to like notice my feet very much, but once in a while I'll think to myself, oh, like how is my right foot doing today? <laughs> and like, what does it feel like being in my foot or trying to embody my foot instead of just living up in my mind? And that has been a really, really fruitful experiment kind of that I've been doing as, as a way to invite more of my body to communicate the parts that, that don't already communicate much or that I don't notice much. And what is your foot telling you? That is a long and complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Open a can of worms. You know what? Like, honestly, if I go there, my feet are often really cold. And I think that for me, there's a lot of areas in life I would like to move that I don't necessarily move and I am frozen. And I think that my feet communicate that. I forget about them or there's a the stuckness, the movement isn't there when I want to move. Or maybe when I should move, when it's not good for me to be in a certain place or relationship or whatever it might be. I, so that's that's my take from it. When I've sat, I'm not trying to interpret it. It's just what comes to me as I've sat with it for a long time. But that's such a beautiful example of like tuning into just the temperature of your feet and then how the temperature of your feet have reflected this frozenness in other areas of your life. That's a really beautiful bridge, I think, between our bodies and our way of moving in the world. Thank you for that, Chelsea. I think that we, we did that pretty well in terms of kind of going into the body and disembodiment and paying attention, um, which is something that is, very, you know, again, very rarely talked about in, in, in popular culture, if you like. Let's move maybe back up the body into the, back into the, the brain and the mind again and look at anxiety and, and what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, anxiety, you know, tends to make us avoid or indeed cripple some people. As existentialists, we are compelled is the wrong word because we're always free, but to confront it really, to confront anxiety. And, and, and how do we do that? I think for to ask the question, of course, you have to move to our brain. But I think I kind of invite us maybe even to stay in our body when we respond to the anxiety. Like how are we encountering it? 
through our bodies and respond to it? How do we turn towards it in our body? I think we can do it very simply when we notice our heart racing, our stomach kind of cringing, our hands shaking or whatever uh, symptoms we may have to turn towards them rather than try them to to try to make them go away. To make them go away or, or even make them into something that they're not to try and find a label or a diagnosis. And certainly there are things that go wrong and disease happens, but our bodies, they're meant to communicate. Pain is, is our bodies communicating something that, hey, this is important. Pay attention to this. Be curious about what's going on. And that can get really missed when we interpret any kind of pain or discomfort in the body as something to be afraid of, to run from, to fix right away or find an answer to. We try to inoculate ourselves against pain when there's a lot of vitality in pain, I think, and a lot of important messages for us in it. So confronting our anxiety, it doesn't mean starting up a fight, but actually it um, it means openness to what is and um, finding a place to, to rest in what is and be curious about it rather than trying to alter it or to control it. Mm-hmm. Acknowledging what is. I mean, anxiety is always an invitation for all of us to touch the ground, to touch the reality rather than the running into fantasies, into uh, interpretations. Like I read this somewhere that we are only anxious about what we've never experienced. We are never anxious about something that we actually experience, but of our fantasies. Like we create our fantasies and then we are afraid of them. Or should I say we are anxious about them? Mm -hmm. It's a big difference between being afraid and being anxious. Indeed. Like afraid is like, I mean, if I've been, for example, exposed to this virus and I know I have it, okay, then I can be afraid because, I don't know, things may go wrong. But if I just sit in my room and fantasize about how I'm going to die from, you know, suffocation because of the virus, that's more like I became anxious about my own fantasies. So anxiety... It's suffering from anticipation of the unknown. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, anxiety is about what I've never experienced. So that's departure from reality so anxiety invites us to come back Mm -hmm. to reality yeah anxiety is always about the future Mm -hmm. we can't be anxious about the past it's about what has never happened yeah Mm -hmm. and and hence why we always return to death Mm because death is in our future Mm -hmm. and that's why returning to our bodies the most (laughs) you know the um, what gives us the signal that we are real we exist in this moment because we are full of sensations and like in our bodies, if we pay attention, that's why turning towards our bodies is so essential in in dealing with, dealing with anxiety. Like opening up to how am I right now? And how can I be with this? And that may be very hard to do. It is hard to do. I, I certainly think there's such value in doing it if you don't know how to do it and doing it with others who can help, you know, direct you to your body or to like Chelsea said, areas of your body that you wouldn't even think to explore. Cause I, I often 
recognize there are certain body parts of mine that respond to anxiety in very specific ways. And I've gotten to know them. So along with the classic symptoms of a little nausea and heart racing, my spine gets really like the muscles around my spine get very sore or my support system, my spine and support system starts to become strained. But there's also parts of my body that don't feel, they don't manifest as much anxiety and also how to feel those parts that feel a lot more stable and steady in these moments are helpful too. Mm-hmm. Janelle, you touched on a, on, on a topic, a word you said support. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Well, and I think Mahila did as well in talking about ground and that being so important in anxiety is finding what is solid, what is stable, what supports me or holds me in whatever I'm experiencing. It is hard to deal with anxiety um, without any sense of support. I mean, that often we will feel anxiety if things are unpredictable, if they're changing, if we don't feel like we have solid ground to stand on. So that's often one area we can explore and look at when confronting anxiety is in what ways do I have ground under my feet? In what ways am I supported? And for sometimes with people I work with anxiety, that's quite literally the chair that they're sitting in. They can trust that it's not going to fall apart while they sit in it, or even the ground, that the ground holds me and supports me and it feels solid underneath my feet. And so we can start there. I can start by sinking into the, into the ground and feeling the solidity of the ground if my body doesn't feel so solid right now. Mm-hmm. And if we pick up on something that, that, we touched on it a little bit earlier when, in, when Mahalo was talking about this, certainly with this virus at the moment, that doesn't have a cure yet, I'd like to add, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of being powerless, helpless. Nobody can really help me in other parts of our lives that are not COVID related. Mm-hmm. Um, support from others can be that which we need to, in order to confront our anxiety. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, it's, um, we notice here in what you say, the, um, how anxiety narrows our perspective and how even what you brought up here in, in our um, talk broadens it, right? Mm-hmm. And like just look beyond mm-hmm. what is the focus of your anxiety. Maybe you cannot find it, um, find ground in your body or by yourself, but maybe turn towards others, turn towards nature, towards God or faith if someone mm-hmm. is um, has a faith, a spiritual. Yeah, so... This is also um, dealing with anxiety, right? Illness, anxiety, mm-hmm. death, anxiety, like opening up, mm-hmm. taking a, a deep breath, not just physically, but even like mentally, emotionally, and expanding our mm-hmm. view. And noticing that there are other supports or grounds and protection in places that we maybe we don't see. Mm-hmm. For me, with clients that have illness, anxiety, will often have a conversation around the things that they don't get anxious about to do with their body. And usually that's mm-hmm. very, very eye-opening. If somebody is quite fixated on one thing or a particular symptom, and then I, we talk about, okay, well, you know, like your eyes, they're, they're blinking for you. Your eyes continue to lubricate and your skin regenerates and your hair, it grows. And your stomach digests for you. These are all things your body is doing for you and supporting 
for you and things that you trust. You you haven't even given thought to these things. There's so much focus on one thing. And then the, the avoidance around that is huge. I think the what you were saying, I can't remember who said it, but around confronting the anxiety or maybe confronting the experience rather than avoiding it. I've been playing around with kind of this idea of immunity and what it means to be immune. And in the Latin, it means exempt, protection, resistance to. And I was thinking it as it relates to kind of this virus, we only come to immunity from the virus by engaging with it. Our bodies engage with it, it fights it, we recover, and then we have this immunity. And I think that concept is so important for anxiety that the answer is is not avoidance or less, but it's engagement. It's coming into and and allowing, maybe there is a bit of a fight or, or maybe there's a conversation to be had, but there has to be some kind of grappling with the anxiety that and it takes courage to face that just as in fighting off you know this virus the the whole body fights it off together and that's scary but the immunity that can come out of it is precious and it can only be earned through that confrontation mm-hmm. and perhaps we should address also the the other tendency in anxiety is uh, you know, is not so much avoid but to fight but perhaps not necessarily in a constructive mm-hmm. way uh-huh. And also what you said, Sab, and what Chelsea said before also made me reflect on the fact that maybe, again, as a society, as a, how we do life kind of together in our society, we relied so heavily on this concept of safety and everything needs to be safe and we have mm-hmm. to enjoy responsibly everything. And mm-hmm. so I think this obsession with safety might have destroyed a little bit of our immunity in a metaphorical and maybe even literal way, because uh, we may have forgotten that we need to engage and fight sometimes. And the extraordinary fight of our bodies with this virus, especially in severe cases, right? Like it uh, triggers such an intense reaction for someone to fight for their life. Lives, it's so powerful to me. So I wonder if, uh, and again, on, on a more systemic level, we really kind of got used to be safe, so safe that this immune response, this fighting, confronting, is a little bit, you know, dulled. Well, not Underdeveloped. So. Underdeveloped, I think that's a better word. Yeah. Word. So, yeah, I know it's a very far-stretched connection, but like listening to both of you is like, yeah, and I think it's not just in our bodies. It's like we take safety for granted. We mm-hmm. deserve to be safe and there is safety. And I think that really not how an existentialist will think about life in general. It's it's another illusion. The the idea that we're not allowed to die. Mm -hmm. And that someone will keep us safe. Mm. Mm -hmm. There is no immunity to death. No. (laughs) But but we walk around living Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. If you haven't noticed by now, listeners, we're existentialists. Perhaps we'll we'll say some final words on this, on illness anxiety, on death anxiety, and what we might, I don't know, might propose to listeners. Maybe say one practical thing that they could do from each of you. 
Yeah, my I have something, but it's not practical. But I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to think about way to put limits on us. <laughs> Existential freedom in action. Yeah. So I would say that I would invite all of us, including myself, like to to embrace anxiety, to embrace anxiety as an existential given that is with us and for us. It's not against us. Not to feel too safe to the degree that we have no immunity uh-huh. to life and no immunity to death. So it's um, an invitation to embrace our anxiety, our fears as a way of being human. And practically, if I really, uh, I mean, I I try to make it practical, it's like if we notice anxiety, invite it, stay with it, don't try to fix it or to distract yourself or make it better. Uh, If you have too much anxiety and panic attacks, you can distract. So just say like it's not meant to torment someone or to overwhelm someone, but to make room for it. It carries an important message. Yeah, I would say that Anxiety extends an invitation to turn toward your body and to come into relationship with your body, to really stop for a moment, get quiet, and feel your existence, your reality, through the lens of being in a body. It's a wonderful thing. I think for me, for something practical, I guess, would be When it comes to death, sometimes I'll have clients kind of write out like their epitaph or what they would like to be known for at their funeral or what people would say about them, just to bring them a little bit closer to, yeah, this idea that, yes, it's, well, I mean, it's not even an idea. It's a reality. We, we die. (laughs) And how can we live knowing that we will die? Another resource that I go to as well for clients is a book that was written by a surgeon, Paul Kalanithi. He's passed away now, but he was a surgery resident when he got a diagnosis of lung cancer. He was just about to start a family with his wife, and he wrote this book called When Breath Becomes Air. And I often refer to that as a resource for clients of Like, what does dying well look like? How do we die well, given that we're dying already? And I know that has been meaningful for people as well. Fantastic. I think that's that's a good place to to leave off. And to end with our existential question for for the episode and and for for the future episode, the existential question for, for today's episode is, where or with whom do you feel at home? And it's not so much for today's episode, but for a future episode. Really sit with yourself and go beyond the, well, my home is here in Vancouver or Edmonton or or maybe I don't have a home mm-hmm. if I'm homeless. Think about really where you feel truly comfortable at home. And of course, send us your answers. Follow us on Instagram at Existentialist Podcast. And let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com.